The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You can imagine that if you got on an airplane and the, you asked the pilot, are we going to get to Miami safely today? And he said, possibly. You might not be terribly convinced that you want to get on the plane. Call me when you get home. Make sure to text me when you get back. These are phrases we commonly use after departing with friends or family, most often after a night out, especially if alcohol is in some way involved. We tend to worry about our loved one's safety. We can appreciate that peace of mind, knowing they've made it home without issue. Drinking certainly heightens that sense of worry, as an individual is in a naturally more vulnerable state if inebriated. But even so, Everyone is entitled to a little fun. People should be able to go out, have a few drinks, and Uber back to their place responsibly. And that's exactly what one 27-year-old woman did back in 2015. And while she was heavily intoxicated, she did make it back to her apartment building. There's a sort of comfort most of us can relate to, finally getting back home after a long day away, no matter the occasion. The only problem was, Making it home after the bars let out for the morning for Sasha Samsidi was tragically and ironically the most unsafe place she could have ever gone. Hi, I'm Sasha from 407apartments.com and I am this year's education committee chair. Thank you so much for attending today's class. That's Sasha Samsidi, a witty, funny, and charming young woman. After graduating from the University of Florida, She began her career as the social media manager for 407 Apartments, a realty company in the area. She began working part-time but climbed the ladder and eventually became their director of operations. In her bio statement on the 407 Apartments website, there's a quote where she describes herself as the Cupid of apartment hunting. She loved her job and she was good at it, helping college students and recent graduates alike find their dream apartments in the downtown area of Orlando was something she really enjoyed. Sasha's hard work was paying off, so she decided to treat herself to one of these nice new apartments as well. A beautiful one-bedroom in the uptown place, a luxury complex on North Orange Avenue. She was in her late 20s, single, and had a great job. By all accounts, Sasha was living her best life, and she was happy with all that she had accomplished thus far. Work hard, play hard was the motto she lived by, according to friends. And one of her best friends at that time was a man by the name of Anthony Roper. The two met through Anthony's sister and hit it off immediately. They became very close, texting, Snapchatting, and even Gmail messaging during work hours. They spoke every day, and Anthony admits that he was romantically interested in Sasha at first, but to his disappointment, she didn't see him in that way. 
At the time I was single, um, I found her very attractive. And um, the thing is, uh, early, early in it, I, I pursued it. But she made it very clear that it was never going to happen. Um, that she would much rather pursue, you know, a close friendship instead of uh, being romantically involved. And I respected her decision. This didn't stop Anthony from keeping a strong friendship with Sasha. While he admits himself that he was in the quote-unquote friend zone with her, once that awkward conversation was had, the two put it behind them and became almost inseparable companions. They would hang out upwards of three to four times per week, often hitting nightclubs on the weekends or sporting events together. Anthony was a huge fan of the Orlando City Lions, a professional soccer club, and eventually introduced Sasha to the sport. I'm a huge fan. I mean, I've, I've been a fan since before the team was MLS. And the thing is, um, she loves live events. I would often invite her to come with me to some of the soccer games, and she would, without hesitation, come with me. So, On Friday, October 16th, 2015, the two made plans to attend one of these soccer matches together, but not before heading to the bars downtown to grab a few drinks. We made plans that day to attend to the game together. Originally, we made plans to meet up at Ember. Uh, on Friday nights in particular, they have really good drink specials. Um, a large group of us uh, were there together um, pre-gaming for the soccer game, the ones that were attending. Anthony met a few of his friends at the bar while Sasha met up with them shortly after, eventually arriving at the club Ember by herself. They found each other, and then the group proceeded to indulge in the three-for-one Friday drink specials, Sasha consuming her drink of choice vodka sodas, or vodka cranberries. She only had one or two as it quickly became time to head towards the stadium. The group of friends then hopped in a shuttle bus that ran frequently to the downtown area and dropped them off at the game. While there, Anthony and Sasha had one tall beer each, conscious of the exorbitant sporting event prices on alcohol. Orlando won the match and everyone decided to head back toward the bars to celebrate. Only this time they would walk figuring it was close enough and easier, considering the congested traffic leaving the sporting event. Anthony and Sasha got separated at some point in the downtown quarter. This wasn't uncommon. However, Sasha was a social butterfly, so to speak. She had a lot of friends working at various bars that were within walking distance from one another. So Anthony and Sasha would almost always split up and then come back together again when out drinking. One of the things that we always did as friends was uh, we'd have friends at multiple bars. We would uh, go separate. When one friend would go here, she would go somewhere else, and then she would text me, hey, where are you at? And then I'd tell, you, I'd, I'd tell her where she was at, and then we'd meet up. So I don't know what happened uh, when we got separated in, in those moments, you know, where, what she was drinking or what have you. But um, we, my friends decided to go to Attic. That's another nightclub. It's not located in Wall Street. It's located in a, at a different um, area downtown. Via text message, Sasha expressed her dislike for the bar attic, but decided to go anyway. The two eventually met back up before walking to their next destination. On our way to attic, she stopped me and she's like, hey, I have to throw up really quick. And I looked at her, you know, quizzically because it, was, it wasn't very like her to do that. And um, I asked her if she was okay. And she's like, and you know, I was waiting for it. I was helping her with her hair and everything. And um, she didn't throw up. She just felt sick. And I asked her in that, in that moment, I was like, would you like to go home now? You know, it seems like you're not feeling well. And she was like, no, 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 no. Let's go meet up with your friends. Let's have a good time. Sasha was clearly intoxicated by this point, as she'd been drinking since the early evening. She assured Anthony that she was fine, and the two continued along on their way. 
They stayed at attic for a while, continuing to drink, but then at around 12.30 a.m., Sasha told Anthony that she was getting ready to leave. We were, we were talking in person, and um, she was like, hey, stay here with your friends. Um, I'm going to go. And the thing is, that every time she mentioned that, something, something related to that, it meant that either she was going to go meet up with a friend, or one of the things that she liked to do was whenever we were out drinking, she liked to just disappear. He was under the impression that they'd be meeting up again later. Only they never did. He stayed with his friends until last call around 2 a.m., and by that point, he assumed Sasha had just gone home. After all, Attic was only about a mile away from where she lived. Eventually, the night came to a close, and Anthony made his way back to his apartment. He sent Sasha a text message apologizing for not leaving the nightclub with her. On Saturdays, the two would usually meet up for breakfast, but he hadn't heard anything from Sasha the following morning. He figured maybe she was just hungover and decided to sleep in. Instead, Anthony decided to go golfing with some of his friends. After returning home later that day, Sasha still hadn't responded to any of his messages. She would normally let him know she made it back to her place under similar circumstances, and the two almost never went this long without communication in general, never mind after a night out of drinking. This was the point at which Anthony became concerned. Her and I were that close and that we always discussed the night before, you know, in the morning. I started growing a little bit suspicious that I was not hearing from her. This is around like, you know, go, you know golf is four or five hours. Um, every single minute, every single hour, just something, something was starting to strike me as bizarre. After trying to reach Sasha on various means of social media and speaking with her other close friends, Anthony realized that no one else had spoken with her in several hours either. Facebook Messenger showed her activity, indicating she hadn't been online since the night before. By this point, Anthony decided it was best to phone police. Authorities told Anthony to try calling every jail and every hospital in Orange County before filing a missing persons report. And so that's exactly what he did. But no one had any record of Sasha Samsony. So Anthony and two of Sasha's other close friends, Megan and Katie, decided to meet up to see if they could locate Sasha in person at her home in the Uptown Place Apartments. You need a key fob to get into the building, so the three waited for a car to exit the parking garage. While the gate was temporarily lifted, they all snuck under and made quick entry. They noticed Sasha's red Toyota Camry was in its regular parking spot. The friends then waited for a resident to unlock the door into the building from inside of the garage level. They then tailed the gentleman and made their way inside. Anthony knew Sasha's unit was somewhere on the third floor, but he couldn't remember the exact number. He then recalled ordering a pizza from Papa John's when they had been hanging out a while back. So he opened the app on his phone and found the delivery address there, Unit 345. Megan, Katie, and Anthony then made their way up to the third floor and began banging on Sasha's door, but there was no answer. It was around 7.30 p.m. when Anthony called police for a second time and officially filed the missing persons report. It wasn't long after Anthony made the call that police showed up at Uptown Place. Soon, the building's security guard noticed the heavy law enforcement presence 
and eventually approached the group, asking what was going on. They informed the man of the situation, and eventually it was decided to contact the building's landlord in order to obtain the access code to Sasha's digital door lock. After doing so, police made entry to Unit 345, while Anthony and his friends patiently waited downstairs. Initially, nothing seemed to be out of place until one officer made his way into the bedroom. After unraveling the comforter from the bed, he happened upon the absolute worst-case scenario during the wellness check. Officer came downstairs and two, three of us just shook his head, informing us that she has passed. She had passed. 27-year-old Sasha Samsudin was deceased, laying there in her own bed, wrapped in a blanket. She had visible red marks on and around her neck, but there also seemed to be evidence of a sexual assault almost immediately. Sasha's bra had been ripped from the front, and her clothing appeared to have been forcefully removed. However, there were no signs of forced entry to the apartment itself. Nothing had been rummaged through or appeared to have been stolen. The apartment was still in order, and yet a woman was found dead inside of her own home. Upon further investigation, authorities did notice something strange. The toilet seat was lifted up. Sasha didn't have a boyfriend or any roommates as she lived alone. This struck law enforcement as extremely odd. Crime scene lab techs were promptly brought in. They dusted for fingerprints, and they inevitably found some there on the toilet seat and on her nightstand. Sasha's cell phone was nowhere to be found, but her iPad was taken in for further analysis. Police also noticed muddy shoe prints in the kitchen, which were subsequently documented. They also noted a relatively strong odor resembling bleach or some kind of cleaning product. The three friends waiting downstairs, trying to grasp the information they'd just learned, were immediately sequestered by authorities to provide individual statements. They had no idea who would have done such a thing or how this could have ever happened. Sasha had no enemies. She was loved by everyone who knew her, which made the entire tragedy that much more bizarre. The suspicious death of a 27-year-old Orlando woman, Sasha Samsudin's body was found Saturday night inside of her apartment at Uptown Place on North Orange Avenue. Right now, police are not releasing many details, but friends and neighbors say they were stunned to hear about it. Typical girl, you know, just a uh, you know, nice, fun-loving girl. She wasn't too like boastful, too loud. Just you know, it's like quiet type, you know, just. So she seemed to get along with everybody. I guess kind of nervous because we don't really know like how she was killed or if we should be concerned that there's someone dangerous living in her building. She was a graduate of Seminole High School in Sanford. Police are asking anyone who was in the area of North Orange Avenue and Mark Street early Saturday morning to please call them. With no significant leads, police wasted no time releasing the news of Sasha Samsonine's death to the public hoping someone would come forward with information that might ultimately aid them in their investigation. Her photo was posted to social media in hopes that someone might recognize her from the night she was last seen. Back at Uptown Place, investigators located several security cameras in each hallway of the building. The footage was not readily accessible, however, and needed to be retrieved from a cloud network. While law enforcement waited for those files to come back, they were able to examine CCTV footage from other local businesses in the area. After meticulously combing through the various videos, Sasha was eventually located on camera, standing out from the crowd in the white pants she had reportedly been wearing. 
Advancing frame by frame, Sasha can be seen stumbling down the road away from the bar district. And even through the grainy footage, it is evident that she appears to be heavily under the influence. At one point on her walk, she encounters two other individuals, and upon closer examination, analysts deduced that it was two women she came in contact with. But it was still unclear if the three knew each other, yet they are now seen walking side by side together in the video. Eventually, the group gets into a vehicle, and Sasha isn't seen again on CCTV thereafter. Investigators needed to find out who these women were, as they were most certainly some of the last people to see Sasha Samsadine alive. But before police could locate the women, they arrived at the police station themselves. Julia Goff and Haley Messmore explained that they saw Sasha's photo online after the circumstances of her death had been made public. In a police interview, they went on to explain that in the early morning hours of October 17, 2015, they noticed a visibly impaired Sasha leaning against a brick building. Neither knew who Sasha was, but after hearing a group of guys catcalling her from a distance, they decided to approach her to see if she needed help. Sasha was able to relay that she was in need of assistance, that she was drunk and just wanted to get home. So Julia and Haley began walking with Sasha in the direction of where they thought she was going. Eventually, they instead decided to call an Uber, which is where we see the three get into the vehicle and drive off on the video. Julia and Haley weren't sure if Sasha had given them the correct address to her apartment, but from what they gathered, they seemed to all be heading in the same direction regardless as the girls lived close by, and to their relief, this turned out to be true. But before arriving at their destination, Sasha did something unexpected. Haley and I kind of looking at each other like, what do we do? Like, what if she doesn't live here? She kissed the Uber driver and then just like jumped out of the car. Without even saying goodbye to Julia or Haley, Sasha suddenly ran across the street as she had recognized her building. Being the good Samaritans they were, Julia and Haley decided to follow her to make sure she had gotten inside safely. The only issue was that Sasha didn't have her phone or her keys. She asked me to help look in her purse. So at one point I'm holding her purse like this and she is taking things out. Um, I'm holding them, we're putting them back in. We did this several times. Um, And at one point she set it on top of the trash can and we continued to look through her purse then. And I kept saying, I'm so sorry, but you don't have the things. You don't have your key. You don't have your phone. And she was adamant that she did and kept looking. There was a keypad, but in the state that Sasha was in, she couldn't even remember the code. Juliet would later characterize Sasha as having been, quote, overserved by wherever she had been drinking prior. Sasha didn't seem to be registering that her keys were not on her person, and Julia and Haley weren't exactly sure of what to do next. Sasha was convinced that she was home, but they didn't know if it was actually where she lived or if it was just where she thought she did. Julia then noticed Sasha's name there on the call box. So, at the very least, they were now relatively certain she was at the right building. They just needed a way inside. Not long thereafter, the security guard appeared outside of the building and asked the girls what was going on. I asked him if he could help us get inside. I explained that we had met her, that she lived here. Clearly, her name was on the call box. Um, And if he could unlock the door and let her inside. And he said he was not able to. The man dressed in uniform told the women that he could not let someone in off the street without proper identification or keys to the building. 
This revelation frustrated Julia and Haley. Sasha did, in fact, live here, but this man wasn't letting her inside. They didn't want to leave a woman they had just met drunk on the side of the road when she clearly needed their help. They even questioned whether or not they should have Sasha come back to their place and sleep on their couch, but eventually decided against it as they'd only known her for about the past hour or so. After going back and forth on what to do, eventually a man who lived at Uptown Place approached and opened the front door with his key fob. Sasha then quickly ran in after him, leaving her new friends and the security guard behind there on the sidewalk. Not knowing what more they could do, Julia and Haley decided to leave. She was safely in the building, I had assumed, and I needed to go to bed so that I could get up for work the next day. And that was the last they ever saw of her, until the following Monday morning while at work. When Juliet was shown a photo of Sasha by a co-worker, he asked her if she heard about what happened just across the street from Julia's building. She could not believe that the woman she had tried so desperately to help had just been murdered. She was certain that it was her, and it was at this point that Julia and Haley decided to go to the Orlando Police Department to give their accounts of what had happened that night. Orlando police are still trying to piece together clues following the murder of 27-year-old Sasha Samsudin. She was found inside her locked apartment Saturday night following a well-being check after friends couldn't get a hold of her. Investigators say it doesn't look like anyone forced their way into her uptown place apartment with a keypad locked door. Neighbors are concerned. You know, is it someone who's going around killing females? Is it just a crime of passion? You know, it could be anything. We just want more detail. Once the official autopsy report had come back, it was evident that this attack was more violent than it originally appeared. Not only were there physical abrasions to Sasha's neck, but it was also fractured. The medical examiner also discovered indications of blunt force trauma to the head, contusions to her upper body, and defensive wounds to her arms. Her death was subsequently ruled a homicide by means of manual strangulation and asphyxiation. Even so, the peculiar details surrounding the investigation still weren't adding up. Sasha was alive and well when witnesses last saw her enter her apartment building lobby at around 2 a.m. on the morning of Saturday, October 17th. Authorities knew they needed to access the hallway surveillance footage, as that video would more than likely reveal the precise moments leading up to her death. But before they had the opportunity to request or review that footage, they decided to question a couple of Sasha's ex-boyfriends. One man in particular piqued their interest when they discovered that one of the last text messages sent out by Sasha was to a Benjamin Roebuck from her iPad. On October 20th, 2015, Ben was asked to come down for an interview by the Orlando police. For the record, you state your complete name? Benjamin Aaron Roebuck. Okay. What is your relationship? I'm, uh, I know she's deceased, but... What was your relationship prior to her, prior to her, her death? Yeah, I mean, we would hang out every so often, you know, we'd meet up, you know, downtown somewhere and hang out and grab a drink. She'd come over sometimes, you know, if I was having a tough day, she'd give me some advice and, you know, we'd hang out and talk. And so we were, we were close friends. She, she was there to support me when I needed it and vice versa. So when was the last time you seen her? Uh, I saw her Thursday night. We went out uh, downtown. Could it have been Friday? No. Ben claims he hadn't seen Sasha since Thursday, roughly two days before she was killed. 
However, he does reveal that he had been communicating with her in the hours after she left her friend Anthony at the bar on Friday evening into early Saturday morning via text. So she texted you late Friday night? I can pull them up if that make it easier. Yes, mm-hmm. please. Let's see. I texted her at uh, 12.44 a.m. saying hello. She said I should come to meet her at Sidebar, which is one of her uh, favorite bars over on, uh, I think it's actually off Central. Um, she said to come to Sidebar now, and I said to come hang out over where I was. I was at a house with some friends, and then she said where. Uh, I gave her the address, and she said I'm at Sidebar. I said just come after, I'll pay for your Uber. Just come on, uh, come on over, let me know. And then she said Ben, and I said Sasha, you okay? And she said, yes, of course. And that was around right around 1 o'clock. I said, okay, we should come hang out whenever you're ready. Um, and then that was the last I heard from her until 5, 12 a.m. Okay. Now you're looking at your cell phone. Mm-hmm. You mind if we take a look at it? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. We're only left to believe that shortly after Sasha sent these text messages to Ben, she lost her phone as it wasn't in her possession by the time she met up with Julia and Haley. We know she didn't have her device when she made it into her building. Therefore, somewhere in between sidebar and walking home, Sasha's phone had likely disappeared. But detectives also noted something interesting. At just after 5 a.m., a single text went out to Benjamin Roebuck that simply read, Ben. And this was the very last message sent from any of her devices. Why did you ask if she was okay? Um, just because, you know, she said my name and just my name, and that that's not typical for her to say Ben. Like, I want to make and it's late, you know, maybe she's been drinking. I want to make sure if she needs a ride or something, I can, you know, get her and get her home safely if I can. But uh, I checked on her just because that's what we do for each other. As investigators continued pouring through the last text messages from Ben to Sasha, Ben eerily asked her in the exchange if she was alive, jokingly referring to her consumption of alcohol not knowing that she was, in fact, deceased when he sent that message. So then you're asking if she's sleeping. And yeah, that, one, that one was a hard one for me to swallow after I found out. You ask her, are you alive? And So I, I know that's that's a little kind of a... No, I, I understand. You know, obviously you're not thinking what, what happened. Yeah, so, not you know, No, way. yeah. You know, basically just, you know, did you get too drunk last night? Ultimately, Ben's alibi checked out. He was at the friend's house he said he had been during the hours in which Sasha had been murdered. He just happened to be texting her coincidentally leading up to the tragedy and was likely wholeheartedly looking out for her well-being, attempting to learn that she was okay. But sadly, Sasha wasn't, and Ben recalled being devastated after learning she never woke up that morning. Still, no one knew how or why this could be the case and another ex-boyfriend of Sasha's was then brought in for questioning. That man was Taylor Unsinger. The two had mutually broken up back in March of 2015, but remained close friends. For record, state your complete name. Taylor Bruce Unsinger. Investigating a homicide. Let me show you this picture. Do you know what this is? Yep. We dated for a little over two years. Was it a serious relationship? Oh, yeah. It definitely was. Okay. Is there any talk of marriage? Yes, we did talk about marriage a couple times. When's the last time you heard from? I heard from her on Friday morning. We had a conversation Thursday evening, late, and then uh, just finishing the conversation Friday morning on Facebook. Okay. And you called on your cell phone? No. No? No, we just Facebook messaged. Facebook, yeah. Okay. 
What is your Facebook account? I mean, your screen name. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's just on Facebook. It's just my name, Taylor Hunsinger. Okay. This investigator clearly doesn't have a Facebook account and was a bit confused on how it all works. Regardless, Taylor's alibi also ends up checking out. He had spoken with Sasha in the recent days before she'd been killed, but hadn't physically seen her for nearly two weeks. Both of the recent ex-boyfriends had also willingly provided DNA samples, neither of which were a match to the profile found on Sasha's body or there in her apartment. Authorities still hadn't made the type of progress they would have liked to by now. But sure enough, the surveillance footage from the Uptown Place hallways finally came back from forensics. If they were going to find out who murdered Sasha, this video would surely prove pivotal. Because whoever the killer was had to be on those tapes. But what they found would inevitably leave even the most seasoned of detectives beside themselves. In the recovered footage from inside of the Uptown Place apartment building, we see Sasha enter the camera frame for the first time on October 17, 2015 at approximately 1.46 a.m. She opens a hallway door and a stocky man, appearing to be in his 40s, comes in behind her. The audio is quite rough, but you can clearly hear Sasha walking loudly, with her flip-flops slapping against the tile. We can vaguely make out the voice of the stocky man asking her, Are you okay? To which Sasha replies, Yes. Police hadn't seen this video until now, and they continued watching to see if there was any further engagement between the two. The video then cuts to the camera on the second floor, where the stocky man is no longer visible and has presumably entered one of the other apartment units. He is not seen again on the video. Sasha then turns the corner alone, stumbling and walking rather loudly as she climbs the stairs. There is an elevator in the Uptown Place apartments, though it's unclear if there's a similar key fob requirement as there is on the front door, which might be required to activate the elevator. Having been without some of her belongings, this might explain why she resorted to taking the stairs. In the video, various tenants are seen on camera coming and going as it was an active Friday night into early Saturday morning. Then at 2.06 a.m., we see the security guard on camera for the first time. He turns the corner in one of the stairwells and appears to be following the sounds of Sasha Samsudin's flip-flops. He then climbs the stairwell and exits the camera's field of view. Almost a half hour later, at 2.25 a.m., the security guard and Sasha are now seen conversing and walking side by side together in another hallway. You can't make out what either of them are saying, but it appears the security guard is trying to help her. Footage then captures the two heading to the parking garage and then returning back into the building shortly after. 2.31 a.m. is the last time we see Sasha on video. Police had already spoken with Duxbury shortly after Sasha was found dead, having conducted an interview at the apartment complex. Let's take a listen now to that audio, recorded on October 18, 2015, between Orlando detectives 
and Uptown Place security guard, Stephen Duxbury. Stephen, prior to going on tape, we spoke about an incident which occurred uh, this last night. Yes, okay. Yes, okay. And well, first of all, do you actually you work for the apartment complex? No, uh, my company, uh, Vital Security and Investigations, is contracted by the apartment com- uh, complex. Okay. Okay. And you're a, a security officer? Yes, I Okay. How long have you been a security officer? Uh, I've been a security officer for about a little over six months now. Okay. In the state of Florida. Okay. And this property is your regular job? Yes, sir. And what time did you get to work yesterday? Uh, yesterday I got to work uh, a little before uh, 2200. Okay. Did you believe someone? No, sir. I'm the only officer that works this site. Okay. Almost immediately, we hear the security guard trying to relate to law enforcement by using military time, each time he's asked a question pertaining to his whereabouts. It's somewhat of a recurring theme when speaking to Duxbury, perhaps a feeble attempt to assure detectives that he is on their side, that he's one of the good guys, and that he just wants to help find whoever did this. You came in contact with a female resident? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about that. Uh, What time did that occur? Uh, it happened approximately about uh, uh, 0200 in the morning. Okay. So you go into the building and mm-hmm. what happened next? And I started uh, sweeping floor by floor to find where she was. And uh, eventually I was able to locate her because she was stumbling around, crashing into the wall. Her footfalls were just slap, 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 slap. And um, she was just kind of she, she wandering around aimlessly. At one point she was at the front end of the building and her apartment, which was 345, is actually on the other side of the building. I think she was confused as to what side of the building she was on. Eventually she did make it to her apartment and she was trying to use the digital key number on it to get into it, but I don't know if she was inputting the wrong code or something, but it wasn't working. At which point um, she thought maybe she left her keys at her car, so she asked me if I would walk with her out to the parking garage so she could try and get the keys out of her car. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, if it's in the car, it's probably locked. I don't see how that's what, but whatever. So I walked with her and we went out and we didn't even go to any car because about maybe five steps out, she's like, wait, I think I remember the code now. And then I'm like, okay, so we go back in. I then bring her back to the thing. She starts trying to punch in codes again, still not working. At this point, I'm like, I have to do, you know, I got to keep doing my job and do another sweep. So I'm like, okay, you stay here and keep trying to do this. I'm going to go do another sweep. And if I come back and you're still not in your apartment, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with the situation. When I came back, she wasn't there. And I did another sweep of the entire building. No sign of her. Did you ever go inside apartment 345? Mm, I'm not supposed to go into apartments. Did did you go? No. No. Okay. Have you ever been in apartment 345? No. No. Did you see anyone going to apartment 345? No. Yes, no. So it all checks out, right? Well, according to the security guard, Sasha must have remembered her code at one point and got into her apartment safely. Her exact unit cannot be seen from the angle at which the cameras are pointed. Therefore, this could all be plausible. But there was one small detail caught on camera that just wasn't making any sense. What time did you shift in? 6 a.m.? Didn't actually get to leave the building until about 6.30, though, because I was still writing on my report. Okay. Stephen Duxbury was right. 
He did leave the building just after 6 a.m., but when investigators zoomed in on the video, they noticed that he was carrying more than paperwork. Instead, he had a fistful of garbage bags. What could he possibly be disposing of at 6.36 a.m.? Taking the garbage out was not even in this man's job description, after all. Duxbury is then seen re-entering and exiting the building again at 6.40 a.m., carrying what appear to be his personal belongings as he finally leaves the property for good. He conveniently failed to mention the trash run during his initial interview. Did you not have the door? No, I didn't. Okay. I just figured that, one, if she had gotten in, she probably was already asleep or passed out or something like that, and she wasn't going to answer the door anyway. And I, for the most part, I don't really make a habit of knocking on, the, on residence doors unless there is a problem, because I don't want anyone to accuse me of harassing them. Uh, I've had some of the residents who I've had problems with before uh, say that they're going to go report me to the main office for harassment. It's like, <laughs> yes, yeah, you're doing your job. Exactly. Yeah, like, I, can, I can understand. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you guys have to deal with that all the time, worse than I do. Residents had, in fact, made reports about Duxbury in the past, formally complaining to the building's management that he was being a, quote, creep and acting sketchy back in May of 2015. He again tries to relate to law enforcement here as if his job as a security guard is remotely similar to that of the two veteran homicide detectives now seated in front of him. Still, he engages in this type of behavior, seemingly attempting to deflect any potential involvement and to meet on some sort of authoritative common ground. He seems to cover all of his bases, having a reasonable or convenient explanation for his tasks completed that morning. That is, until detectives demonstrate why they're sitting where they are and why Stephen Duxbury is seated where he is after they throw the security guard this curveball. Did you have the same same shoes on that you had on that? Mm, I think so. No, I think I was wearing sneakers because my feet were bothering me. You were wearing sneakers? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And you never went inside that water? No. Okay. You so say you had sneakers on? What type of sneakers? Um, just... Uh, sneakers are just some sneakers I had. I don't. I, I don't really pay attention if they're comfortable. They're comfortable. It's what I wear. So you just bring them work with you. No. Just, just in case when you get started. Yeah. Do you have them with you tonight? No, I do not. And you don't know what brand shoe they are. No, sir. How long have you had them? A while. I had them back when I was in the in the Air Force. No. Yeah. What color are they? They're black with um, white um, soles. I'll assume they're at your house. Yes. Stephen Duxbury claims he doesn't know what kind of sneakers he had on the night that Sasha was found dead. Which is odd, as you don't have to be into high-end fashion to recall the brand or type of sneakers you own and wear on a regular basis. He recalls the color, but doesn't know if they were Nike, Adidas, or another brand. Though he would later hand over a pair of Skechers shoes, now remembering and claiming that these were the sneakers he wore the morning he last saw Sasha. But detectives weren't buying it. This was only one of many red flags. But red flags, as we know, aren't enough to make an arrest. I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And is there anything else you can add to this statement? Maybe something that we forgot to ask you that could assist with this investigation? Not that I can think of right now, no. Duxbury was now free to leave. However, after considering this first interview, 
and after comparing his statements made with the security footage, authorities thought it might be best to take a second look at Stephen Duxbury, only a few days later. So who is Stephen Duxbury anyhow? To provide a quick background on this man, well, he's 33 years old, grew up in Massachusetts, but later moved to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire. He's also a veteran, a former senior airman in the Air Force, who served overseas and was ultimately honorably discharged. He went to college for criminal justice upon his return home from the service and later switched majors and was currently still attending school at this time. He was also engaged and soon to be married. He once worked a security position at the Bazalms Grand Resort in Colebrook, New Hampshire, and had recently moved to Florida for this job opportunity and to finish school. After digging a bit more into Stephen Duxbury's past, the authorities learned that while he was working at the resort in New Hampshire, fiction writer Mark Okrant had written and released a novel called Last Resort in 2005. The book's setting was that very resort, and its plot eerily similar to what happened at Uptown Place to Sasha Samsity. In the murder mystery novel, a young woman goes missing at the hotel, and the resort's manager is tasked with conducting interviews with staff to try to solve the crime. The book was sold at the gift shop while Duxbury was working there. This parallel, while perhaps coincidental at best, wasn't going to be ignored by detectives. He was subsequently asked to come in for a second interview. But this time, they also wanted him to take a polygraph examination, a request he ultimately agreed to. When the detectives asked Duxbury if he had any prior criminal history, he offered up this bizarre story. It's a really jacked up uh, situation that happened. Look, you yeah. guys understand. We all have life experiences. We yeah. all done stupid <laughs> shit when we were young. Yeah. And we've grown from those. You, you know, you're not actively still doing the same silly stuff. So it, it's, it's all part of living and growing up it's, it's called life and no one here is going to judge you because I guarantee I've done probably worse than what you did probably <laughs> uh, and at some point we've all done stupid stuff so yeah. uh, basically it was just um, my best friend's older sister was babysitting my siblings because they wouldn't listen to me my mother was a single mother raising four kids we lived in a farm and this is where I lived in Otis, uh, Massachusetts kid, uh, kid that lived down the road kept sneaking over to our farm and opening all the doors letting our animals out in the middle of the night and we lived on a major highway mm-hmm. well I had to take the dogs out to the barn she came with me to help me because I had a gold retriever and another dog and while we were out there I had forgotten to plug in the uh, cord that gave power to the barn in the house so it was pitch black and I thought I heard something upstairs and I thought oh god she's upstairs so you know not really thinking I went over to the wall of tools and I grabbed the first thing that it seems sense to me, which was a shovel head that had broken off the staff. Mm-hmm. I go up the stairs, and she's following me. She was about a year or two older than I was. And, you know, she's kind of nervous about what's going on. So I'm like, okay, stay here at the top of the stairs. If anyone tries to run by you, stop them. She's like, okay. So I go walking around. But I can barely see anything because, you know, the moonlight, not really, you know, thinking too clearly, looking back. I'm walking. I hear... Floorboards creak. I see a shadow move out of the corner of my eye. Turn around. 
outside the back of her head. Oh, she had moved and followed me. Stephen Duxbury has just confessed that when he was a juvenile, he had his best friend's sister over the head with a shovel. The family of that young girl pressed charges, and Duxbury pleaded guilty to the assault, and his family subsequently made the move to New Hampshire. Only 20 minutes into his interview, and we already get a glimpse into Stephen Duxbury's dark past through his own admission. And after roughly an hour in, the polygraph examination finally begins. Do you know if Sasha was poisoned? No. Was she shot with a twenty-two? No. Was she stabbed? No. Was she choked? No. Suddenly, the needle jumps. Was she shot with a thirty-eight? No. Was she hit with a hammer? No. Did you enter Sasha's apartment that night? No. Do you know who caused Sasha's death? No. Were you ever so angry with someone that you wanted to hurt them? Yes. Okay. What was that incident about? The uncle that I got when I was nine years old. Okay, so you didn't tell me about that. Duxbury has just revealed to the detective that he had been raped as a boy by his uncle when he was just nine years old. He appeared completely calm in the beginning of this interview, but when the examination actually began, his demeanor suddenly changed. He became extremely tense and visibly nervous, particularly when asked questions about Sasha. The entire examination lasted almost three and a half hours, and it's crucial to point out that Stephen Duxbury was also asked to provide a DNA swab and fingerprint samples at this time as well, requests both of which he obliged. The investigator eventually prints out the results and asks Stephen to point out the waveforms he notices are the most dramatic and abrupt changes on the paper. He picks out certain lines as appearing the most prominent spikes on the graph, and the man administering the examination then explains to Stephen that he just picked out all of the questions that involve Sasha Sampsony. This is where the detective begins to press on Stephen a little harder, confronting him now with the fact that he is clearly hiding something. Without even being a polygraph examiner, you were able to show me each question you had issue with, and all, every single one of them on every single chart was the relevant questions. So that means there's something there. There's something that you're not telling the complete truth about. Something's bothering you about this situation, and you're not being 100% honest with me about it. That's what I can tell you, and that's all I can tell the detectives, that there is something there that you're not being 100% honest about. Now, if she invited you in to have a few drinks or something like that, or whatever it was, you need to be honest about it because this is saying you know something, and that something happened. This is what this is telling me. And like I said, Sometimes things happen. If she was over flirtatious and something happened and you panicked, we can understand that. But if you can feel that and, you know, all the evidence comes in and you had your opportunity today to talk about it, it's not going to look good because if there was an accident, that's one thing that we can explain away. But if you don't talk about it and it comes back, it makes it look like you're, what, a monster. Okay? And I don't think you're that kind of person. Okay, you were the last person to see her. Okay, and based on your own opinions on this chart that you pointed out to me, you know, th this can go either way. You can either look like a horrible monster or some ac accident happened and you panicked. And we can explain that kind of stuff. But if you don't talk about it, it's not going to look good. And I don't know what to talk about. I mean, nothing happened. I, mean, I never went into her apartment. So, I mean, I don't know why. I, 
reacted the way it did. Needless to say, Stephen Duxbury failed the examination miserably, though the very act of failing a polygraph examination was not enough to hold him in custody, and the results would never be admissible in court. As a result, he was free to leave once more, but not for long. By now, detectives had obtained a search warrant for his apartment. Among the clutter of clothes and empty soda bottles, they eventually came across a pair of running shoes, a pair of 2012 Nike Hirachi free runs. And sure enough, these sneakers were an exact match to the footprints found in Sasha Samsadine's apartment. Forensic testing had also come back, and it was officially determined that the unknown DNA profile found on Sasha's body was a match to none other than Stephen Duxbury. The fingerprints found on her toilet seat and nightstand were also conclusively linked to security guard Stephen Duxbury. Law enforcement finally had what they needed to legally apprehend their suspect on October 30th, 2015, about two weeks after Sasha's murder. On October 17th, Sasha Samsadine was uh, found murdered in her apartment. Today, our detectives have arrested Stephen Duxbury, uh, the security guard from Uptown Apartments in connection with this case. Stephen Duxbury is charged with first-degree murder, sexual battery, and burglary to an occupied dwelling. As a security guard, he used his access uh, to prey on someone who was very vulnerable. Our hearts go out to Sasha's family. Our thoughts and prayers are with them. And we hope that this will bring a little bit of closure or start the process of closure for this family. The chief said uh, Stephen Duxbury was a security officer working for Uptown Place. He took advantage of a vulnerable person. You know, we truly feel sorrow and sadness for um, Sasha's family. She was a young, beautiful, vibrant woman, loved by her friends and her community um, in the prime of her life, and it, it, it definitely takes a toll. Sasha Samsadine was just 27 years old, when her life was tragically taken from her, inside of her own home. She left behind two loving parents, Ken and Tara, and her brother and best friend, Kenny. While the family was left to pick up the pieces of this inconceivable loss, so many questions remained yet unanswered. Perhaps the most prominent being, how on earth did this man actually get into her apartment? During the trial, his method of entry would be explained, specifically by the state of Florida, roughly two years after Sasha's murder. In late November of 2017, opening arguments began, and Stephen Duxbury's defense would harp on the fact that the surveillance images never actually showed their client entering Sasha's apartment. Obviously, because Unit 345 was out of the camera's direct line of sight. They also called other former romantic partners of Sasha's to the stand, asking questions regarding rough sex and characterizing the victim as, quote, kinky, as to imply this may have been a sexual encounter gone wrong. So in your, in your experience, based on your intimacy with her, she would be open to something like playing around with uh, choking or uh, role-playing, things like that? Yes. Um, how about like role-playing um, as a part of rough sex? Was that something you engaged in? 
Um, role playing, like, I, I can't say for sure because that's not something that I would have wanted to do. If I use the word kinky, do you know what that means? Yes. Would you characterize her in that regard? Yeah. Okay. It's clear that the defense was grasping at straws, and in a rather distasteful manner at that. Duxbury had previously stated to police that he saw Sasha walking with another man the night she was killed, but this mystery man was never once caught on camera. Stephen Duxbury was, however, but all of this testimony would be quickly outweighed once the prosecution presented their arguments. They brought to the table fingerprints, footprints, DNA, and surveillance video footage, all of it conclusively pointing the finger at Stephen Duxbury as the man responsible for Sasha Samsadine's death. But there was even more. The state showed screenshots of Duxbury carrying out the garbage after his shift ended the morning of October 17th, including images of garbage bags that resembled those found in Sasha's apartment. An ominous photo of Duxbury was also presented, taken that very same morning once police had arrived. He was still wearing his security guard uniform and presented visible scratches and marks across his arms, each of them alleged defensive wounds. But that wasn't all. The greatest backbreaking evidence in the case was found on Duxbury's phone. During the trial, it was explained that during a 90-minute period, in which Stephen Duxbury didn't appear on surveillance camera, he had been Googling how to bypass a digital quickset lock, the exact locks used on all of the apartment units, Sasha's included, in the upscale apartment building. This new evidence would imply that sometime after 5 a.m. and before he left the building at 6.40, Stephen Duxbury Googled, learned, and applied this information successfully unlocking Sasha's door. They argued that he broke into Sasha's apartment, and while she was sleeping safe and sound in her bed, Stephen Duxbury, a trusted security guard whose job it was to protect the tenants of Uptown Place, then sexually assaulted and strangled Sasha to death. The forensic pathologist took the stand to testify to verify his medical findings from her death investigation. Did you form an opinion about what caused Ms. Samsadine's death? Yes, she is... Um She's dead as the result of uh, asphyxiation uh, and a particular type of asphyxiation, manual strangulation. Did you determine a manner of death? The manner of death is homicide. And what does that mean to a forensic pathologist? As the terminology homicide as opposed to how I might use it. That means that the death uh, was the result of the action of another individual. Stephen Duxbury then proceeded to hastily clean up leaving behind significant evidence. But if that wasn't enough, listen to the conclusive odds in regards to determining whether or not Duxbury's DNA was in fact that left on Sasha Samsadine's body, specifically her breast area and upper chest. The real statistical significance is 860 trillion. And approximately how many Earth's populations is 860 trillion? Greater than 120,000 Earth populations. No other questions of this witness. In the closing days of the trial, the defense rested without calling any further witnesses, and Stephen Duxbury sat silent with a blank stare on his face for the duration of the proceedings. With the overwhelming evidence stacking up against him, a jury of his peers ultimately came back with their verdict, 
a decision Judge Lisa T. Munyon would read aloud in court. Verdict as to count one. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the indictment, and the killing was premeditated murder and felony murder. Verdict is to count two. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of attempted sexual battery with physical force as charged in the indictment. Verdict is to count three. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of burglary of a dwelling with an assault or battery as charged in the indictment. Then, Mr. Duxbury, a jury of your peers, having found you guilty of first-degree murder, attempted sexual battery with physical force, and burglary of a dwelling with an assault or battery. I adjudge you guilty of those offenses at this time. Before Stephen Duxbury was taken away to spend the rest of his life in prison with the Department of Corrections, these powerful victim impact statements from both Sasha's mother and father were provided to the court. What he has done is broke the chain that we had as a family of four. That chain is broken. It's now a family of three. I'd like to thank my family most of all for being here for me. Because you never know how much your family means to you until something like this happens. The little old saying, you don't know if you're going to miss the water until the river goes dry. Well, I miss my daughter. She was ambitious. Whatever she did, she gave her all. That's all you can ask of someone. She loved unconditionally in the true sense of the word. And even though she was only around for 27 years, she lived a pretty darn full life. She achieved so much, and I'm proud of what she did. Wherever she is, She's continuing. She's continuing to do that. We sense her presence. We feel her presence every day, every night. I look out the window and I look for that red camera and I say, eh, maybe Sasha will show up. Well, uh, maybe not. I'm a dad. We're parents. And we do also feel for the parents of the person who took my baby from us. He might have done something wrong. I don't think they did. I feel for them. My heart goes out to them. The Samsadine family has since filed a wrongful death suit against both Quickset Locks and Vital Security, the company who hired Stephen Duxbury. The results of those cases have not been made public. Sasha's favorite color was red, and she liked to dress up. She enjoyed looking her best and cherished every moment of her short life. Her former co-workers at 407 Apartments began a trend to commemorate their friend, wearing red in her memory and posting the hashtag FancyForSasha on Twitter. There were some 300 people who attended her funeral and over 100 at the memorial service. Before Sasha's death, her brother Kenny was in a terrible car accident back in 2012 when he ran headlong into another vehicle. When Kenny got out of the car to assess the damage, along with the other driver, the group, along with two others, were all struck by a jeep speeding past while they were standing in the street. The crash left Kenny in critical condition. He was in a coma and spent over 30 days in the hospital. During those 30 days, Sasha was there by his side. She virtually never left her brother, and he would eventually make a full recovery. In 2021, 
Kenny Samsadine decided to trek one of Florida's longest hiking trails, where he scattered his sister's ashes along the way. With a Garmin GPS tracker at the request of his mother, and while wearing a red tie strapped to his hiking backpack, Kenny tucked a picture of Sasha underneath to carry along with him on his journey. He expressed to local news reporters that he doesn't plan for the future as much since losing his sister. As he explained it, after Sasha died, he feels as though it's critical to live and appreciate each moment while he has the opportunity, not only for himself, but for his sister, who is no longer here. After what happened to Sasha, I don't, I don't want to put all my, my focus and effort into thinking about what might be in the future, because... You're living for right now. I'm living for right now, yeah. yeah. 